0: Continuing on with our exploration of the evolutes of maya. We've been through the first eight. We even did a review of them today. And now we've just gone through four more. abhimana, the delusion that supposes that the self within is an agent of action. Visamvada Brahma, the tendency of maya to cause the mind to mistake something that exists for something else. Or perhaps mistake something for another thing which is illusory, or even vice versa. And Viparita Bhavana Viparita Bhavana is based on that fallacious belief that the world is the only reality. And then we just before the break discussed Vrittigana, knowledge attained by the activity of the mind, uh, which is limited, but which people fasten unto as if it were the ultimate. And much of our education in terms of a Western society is based upon the idea that this Aparavidya, or lower knowledge, is the ultimate thing to attain. But there is a higher knowledge of direct experience of things beyond the mind, which the luminaries, the saints and sages, have plumbed and realized and tell us that exists beyond this lower intelligence. That brings us to number 13 of the Evolutes of Maya, Dosha Dristi. Dosha Dristi. It's been mentioned by many, including our own Sri Sharada Devi, Holy Mother, who is the mother of this ashram and the mother of the Ramakrishna order. Dosha Dristi is that tendency of human beings to find fault, or to see imperfection everywhere. The problem with this is that it causes one to overlook the inherent perfection of everything, or cause even the goodness of everything to be obscured. In an extreme state, that would be the case of somebody who's always hypercritical or overcritical, and in a less intense state, that would just be the tendency of people to be looking for the defects in things and overlooking what's inherently perfect. So drishti really proceeds from the unripe ego. That is, the ego that's insecure in one moment and then the next moment is puffed up with pride. It's a wavering condition and it's Reflective of a kind of spiritual immaturity. In the spiritually mature, you don't see that tendency to find fault with other things. In fact, our peace quote: Sahana Bhavatu Sahana bhunaktu Tejasvi ma vidvishavahai. That whole quote asks us to observe that import that there's some sort of defect itself in the tendency to find defect in world, universe, teaching, teacher, and that one should open up and see beyond that and look for what is essential and what is good, what is beneficial. There are several quotes from different luminaries that I've gathered regarding this Dosha drishti The Blessed Christ said, for instance, Seek thee first to remove the beam from thine own eye before attempting to remove the mote of dust from another's. So in terms of finding fault with others or criticizing others, Jesus lets us know that quite often before we can do that, we need to remove all the imperfections within our own mind. The unique thing that happens there is instanced by his own state of mind, whereas you see that in the avatars, that they don't, really see sins or imperfections in others. They just notice a problem and help remove it. But they don't take it, as sometimes the moralist does, to be an absolute. Or as Swamiji put it, it's the sin we hate, not the sinner. Quite often, people come down to actually disliking the possessor of the transgression or hating the sinner rather than just a sin. But in the case of the avatars, they saw only the apparent problem there and then helped remove it without casting an aspersion on the actual perfect soul which dwelled there within, which had just come into a state of forgetfulness, say, mudavasta, or had been taken over by some other evolutive Maya, uh, as we've been discussing over these last two classes. Of course, we have the famous quote from Sri Sharda Devi, Holy Mother, given at the time when she was passing from the body, some of the last words that she uttered were, Do not find fault with others. Learn to see your own faults. The whole world is your own. No one is a stranger. Now this is given, of course, from a very Advaitic standpoint. The whole world is not your own in two other cases. One case is when you fail to see it as Brahman, and in the other case, when you're discriminating between the unreal and the real. You cannot make the whole world your own at that point. You have to be engaged in a process of neti-neti, and that is, you can't frequent the society of people who are not pursuing the same things you are, that is, who are attached to the world, if you're trying to give up the world, if you've seen the efficacy of that. So in those two instances, we find here, the whole world is your own means everything is Brahman, all is Brahman, and no one is a stranger means that that Atman exists in all other beings in the same way that it exists in yourself. I don't know that these famous words of Sri Sharda Devi have ever been interpreted or explained in that way, but that's the way I see them. Of course, the moral element of the teaching is to look into your own faults first before you see faults in others. And in fact, the guru or the spiritual teacher or the preceptor who is illumined and authentic is able to help you with your apparent imperfections. Number one, because he doesn't find fault with you, he sees just an error in your perception and doesn't take things personally or on an emotional level, and is also, or should be, freed from those kinds of faults, him or herself. So, Holy Mother's words, always a wealth of wisdom when contemplated deeply. Let's see what Lord Buddha says in his unique way about this problem of dosha drishti, finding fault. He says, "...the faults of others are easily seen but one's own faults are perceived with difficulty. One winnows the faults of others like chaff, but conceals his own faults as a fowler covers his body with leaves and twigs. (laughs) So we see in nature and in life, Ramakrishna, Lord Buddha, Sri Krishna, and others always saw what was happening and used those examples in life to reflect spiritual truths or spiritual problems and their solutions. So... A fowler covers his own body with leaves and twigs it means he's trying to obscure himself so he can catch his prey. In the same way, you see that beings often try and cover their own faults, but yet they'll winnow the faults of others like chaff. Speaking further on this subject, Lord Buddha also said, Those who imagine error where there is none and do not see it where it does not exist, such beings, embracing false views, into the woeful path so you can see this tendency you can even project an error upon another person if you're not careful where it doesn't exist and then you can laud somebody about their so-called good traits when really they don't have them there's just a put on it's just a show they seem to have good traits so these two tendencies are there And it's one of the drawbacks of praise and blame, or of criticizing others or lauding others. see that lumen don't go there, as they say. They simply remove the beam of imperfection from their own way of seeing, and then they see clearly. Then the problem doesn't exist in the first place. Another aspect of dosha drishti probably should be brought in here. It's, of cosmic design. That is, we've been talking about it on the individual and collective level where human beings and society are involved. But in the cosmic design, there are defects inherent in this universal scheme of things. And there are many people who obsess about them and complain about them so that they find fault with this world. And of course, we just mentioned the Sahana of chant. chant, It's not find fault with this world. It's to see the inherent perfection in it. That is, you could say the world is perfect in its imperfection. That is, the changing scenes of this universe are there by design and there to show us. For instance, when Christ said birds have nests and foxes have hold, but we have no place here, he meant to wean us off this world as our eternal abiding place. This isn't where we exist, in a material plane, in a world that's in the mind, as it were. But we actually come from and always exist in the Atman. So he was speaking specifically to those people who had taken the body and the world to be real. Isn't that one of the evolutes we just talked about? Viparita bhavana, that you take the world to be real. So here we see, in a cosmic way, a very similar or related type of thing in Drishti. We find fault with the world when it's set up exactly to be as it is on one level, on a relative level, as kind of a schooling for the soul, but on an entirely different level that it is Brahman. And those are two higher viewpoints than finding fault with the world. So this has to be in regard to Dosha drishti on the cosmic level. Lord Buddha has a quote in that level. He says, The world is blind. Few see things as they really are. As birds escape from the net, very few gain right perspective. So it's hard to get over this idea of seeing the world either as real or as imperfect. In other words, you see it as real when it's really a passing or changing thing. Or if you see it as it is, then you see its imperfections and you complain about them. Those are two very tight traps. And they're very subtle traps, too. And you see people caught in those traps, the the people who are always criticizing or the people who are completely deluded and think they are a part of this world, that this world is the reality. And they don't get that higher view. But the seer of wisdom uses discrimination to uncover the defects in creation and transcends them, also perceives their unique facility for revealing what is perfect behind the imperfect world. In other words, darkness only reveals the glory of the light, to put it in biblical terms. Or as Sri Ramakrishna puts it, once some ruffians were causing a disturbance on a landlord's estate, the landlord hired some other ruffians to go and put an end to it. <laughs> Sri Ramakrishna uses stories like that to illustrate that Darkness only reveals the glory of the light. Sometimes you put both ends against the middle to get to a higher solution. More to the point, and at a very realized level, the Great Master has another story. Sri Ramakrishna says, A monk was once beaten unconscious in the streets by a wicked man. When he regained consciousness at the monastery, one of the monks asked him where he was in order to ascertain his mental competency. He answered, He answered, He who is beating me is now inquiring after my well-being. So that illumined mind saw Brahman everywhere. So the same one who was beating him was also inquiring after his well-being. So that one self is in all. And when one sees that one self in all, then how can one see fault? Or how can one blame? Or how can one be aware of imperfection? One is instead always aware of the inner meeting, even behind such negative goings-on as happen in the universe, not only on the cosmic level in terms of famines, floods and pestilence and other things, but also in terms of human relations, individual and collective in the society. So the conclusion, really, the enlightened mind sees perfection everywhere and realizes that all imperfection is in the cosmic design and always serves a higher purpose. So that's Dosha Dristi on several different levels the individual, collective, and the cosmic. Which takes us on to Tarkika Buddhi, the fourteenth of these sixteen evolutes of Maya, which by noting we can cause Maya to recede and rescue ourselves out of those potential dangers. And we can see Maya as simply the power of Brahman and we can enjoy the lila, the play, or the expression, knowing that maya simply provides all the worlds and bodies and various scenes of this universe. But we won't fall into the traps of those that occur by our own mental problems and projections. Tarkika bodhi then, conveys the problem of an intellect that always argues. An intellect that always argues. This is, of course, due to that dosha doshadristi aspect of it that we just mentioned, in part, that is always finding fault. It also points very directly to lack of faith or non-acceptance of truth, which is kind of a basic insecurity. Recently I remember, for instance, I told a friend who was just a neighbor, I was meditating at 5 a.m. the other morning and the sun came up and it was so beautiful. And immediately that person said, oh yes, I was meditating in my living room. I got the feeling there that uh, maybe that person was just saying that so that they didn't feel guilty about not meditating at 5 a.m. But whatever the case may be, the idea is that there's a basic insecurity in people based on non-acceptance of truth. Truth is a steep ascent to get to especially the non-dual aspect of it, and to dwell there is no easy matter. So people quite often backslide or slide down that steep ascent, or else, looking at it, get daunted and don't want to undertake the journey in the first place. Therefore, they would fall back on sort of a projected intellectualism that shows itself to be other than what it is. That is, it pretends to be realized. This is very much descriptive of Tarkika Budi, what is more, it reveals that inherent defect in the mind which inadvertently defaults to possessiveness around its small store of personal knowledge. And we were, of course, talking about that in terms of Rittigan. You always go back to this store of knowledge and kind of default there. And if you can't draw from that, then you're quite often nonplussed or unhappy. In every religion, there are teachings about this idea of argumentative intellect. Sri Ramakrishna indicates it by saying, everyone thinks that their own watch keeps the only correct time. That's a kind of narrow intelligence that proclaims its own way to be superior to others and argues incessantly on the matter. So in religion, we have that problem. Also in scholastic circles, Tarkika Buddhi, in scholastic circles, it's been made into an art form, <laughs> this idea of argumentativeness turning the pastime of argument and superior debate into kind of a coveted attainment. This is really just moha or delusion, as Sanskrit says, wherein something negative or detrimental is presumed to be positive and beneficial. In philosophy, we find that in terms of the philosophers refuting each other's views or beings engaged in text torturing or inadvisable interpolation over the true meaning of Scripture, flowery language they might impose over something that's very true, or a kind of hiding of the truths that the Great ones said because it doesn't fit with the comfort zones of individual personalities or with society. And even in everyday life, people argue incessantly about matters best kept secret. Even if they should accept something outright, they argue about it just to be able to argue. It's become kind of a way of hanging out the dirty laundry for enjoyment of sensation. Lord Buddha says, one is not a supporter of the law merely because he talks much, but that one who hears only a little of the divine law yet perceives its essence by diligent exertion and does not neglect it, that one indeed is a true supporter of divine law. So you can't just hear a little bit about the divine law and then call yourself an adherent or a supporter. You have to hear about it, perceive its essence, exert, never neglect it, and then indeed become a true supporter. That's why people who take exception with the path or the teacher, then you have to tell them, never be a detractor of dharma, always be its supporter. Personal arguments and your own individual issues with the path may come up but even if they're valid it's a matter of little moment compared to becoming a true dharmic person and supporting the law as it has been laid down by scriptures especially revealed scriptures and by the great ones who have realized those scriptures speaking of those shankara refutes that tendency of the intellect to argue and advises instead acceptance of what is natural and what is obvious. He says, quote, Giving up this unreal notion, what you have taken as your own self, take instead that which is real, self-evident, beyond argumentation. I am Brahman. By this pure thought, know I own self, which is indivisible consciousness. So that comes more to the point. Instead of getting all wound up in these unreal notions of what you know or what you've taken to be real, take instead that which is real and self-evident, again, by statement of the great teachers and gurus and the revealed scriptures. Bhagavad Gita and Sri Krishna put it in simpler terms. He states, those who carp and cavil about this, the supreme truth, will never be able to comprehend it. So, You must be in a mode of acceptance. Acceptance means openness and humility. You can't be carping and cavilling about every little thing and thinking you know better than those who have gone before you. You have to be in a mode of acceptance. Sri Ramakrishna says, Only one thing has never been defiled by the tongue of mankind, and that is Brahman itself. There are defects in every religion, but it is God who maintains them there, and it is God who also removes them in time. That's a very powerful statement. I've used that often as a teaching of a great master, that one needs to inform oneself about that. So what if there's defects in religious approaches? It's God who's put them there. Is a very unique look at that, rather than people are always blaming the faults of religions on mankind. And certainly interpretation around religion, there's plenty of faults that mankind can profess to. But as far as these defects in the path, Quite often you'll see in a path there's a bend or a crook. It's not a straight path. And that's meant to be there, so to tests one's ability to stay on the path. Otherwise, if it's all easy, one can't rise to the higher Advaitic or non-dual levels When the going gets rough. So quite often these defects or apparent defects in the religious paths are there to test people see if they have a higher metal or if they're made of stronger stuff. And quite often I've seen that used as an excuse by people to give up religious pursuits and spiritual effort. They'll find something to blame in the path or with the teacher. And that's a convenient excuse for them to leave off the search or the striving. So we find here that Shankara and Krishna and Buddha were also aware of this kind of thing. Let's take another quote from Sri Krishna, this time from the Uddhava Gita. He says, It is not as you put it, it is as I put it. This sort of fighting over the issue is due to Maya's power of the gunas, which are difficult to get rid of. It is this disturbance that causes the doubt which is the ground of contention among disputants. This doubt vanishes when one attains calmness of mind and self-control. And after that, all dispute is at an end. So this warring of opinions back and forth, you see, takes them away from the real point. And it's due right here, Sri Krishna says, to the Maya's power of the gunas. And that's really what we're talking about in these 16 evolutes of Maya. These are Maya's powers. The next and number 15 and penultimate evolute of these 16 evolutes of Maya is called Pratiloma. This is even subtler than what we were just talking about, Tarkika Budi, in that it's an inadvertence towards following the way of harmony, unity, and natural balance. It's amazing how at first there's the simple, easy life and people take to it. and Then there's a need to to rise above the simple, easy life via strong self effort. Then they exert that strong self effort and they succeed and they get to this very pure, simple truth. And then they're unlikely to accept it. It has to be all hard again, it has to be all difficult. It's one of the problems of sadhana and spiritual discipline that if you're not always exerting full on, then you're not going to be happy sort of like a professional student who can never seem to find an end. But there is an end to sadhana and an arrival at a place of pure, lucid, easy clarity in truth. It's called realization, and it's very natural. You'll find that in the Zen Buddhist approach. They're finding that even just taking tea, that is enlightenment. Just sitting naturally, easily, that is enlightenment. Just walking about with your mind on this clear and simple truth every moment of your life. It's a kind of enlightenment. So that's an aspect of this prati loma. People are actually a little inadvertent or against accepting this natural balance in things. That's one aspect of it. Another aspect of it would be that there are plenty of people who just won't accept truth outright. They'd rather accept everything that is unreal or everything that is ephemeral, that is. So there's a distortion in the mind that neglects or rejects the light of higher intelligence, and it accepts the ego's divisive tendencies instead. So this is a kind of twisted thinking. And when it gets free reign in the mind, it grows antagonistic to the Divine Presence. You see that sometimes. And of course you'll see that in those of Asuric nature, if I can borrow a phrase from Bhagavad Gita times, that is, those who are of demonic nature. They have a propensity for evil and resist anything divine because the ego wants to own everything and control everything. And that's the opposite tendency of a spiritual aspirant who wants to give everything up and let everything be and see the Lord as the ultimate controller, Ishvara as the controller of the universe rather than the over-inflated ego. If one follows this way of Pratiloma, one finds this tendency burgeoning into obsessive fixations, warped complexes, and mental imbalances. In fact, Lord Buddha observes, Long is the night to a sleepless person. Long is the distance of a league to a tired person. Long is the circle of rebirth to the fool who does not know the truth. For a tired person, one league seems to be a long way to go. In that same way, this circle of rebirth is endless to one who doesn't know the truth. So one needs to give off being resistant to natural harmony, unity, and balance and just see everything as it is and rest in that vision. And then one will understand a little bit the naturalness of the state of Atmagyan and the condition of illumination around it. Lord Buddha states further, So long as evil deeds do not mature... The fool thinks his deeds to be sweet as honey. But when the evil deeds mature, they bring untold misery. We were actually just mentioning that at the break. Is that sometimes everything looks fine, it's going on well for people? That's often because they only brought their positive, some scars, and their good karma to bear in this life. They found a way of coming into this life and not dealing with any of the negative propensities in their mind. But you'll see among people who are basically good and even generous and seemingly selfless that some great problem arises due to past karmas and turns their life very difficult. Oftentimes, again, we have the appearances of things and things seem to be other than what they truly are in that case. So Lord Buddha notes that here. So long as evil deeds do not mature, the fool thinks his deeds to be sweet as honey. Of course, this applies mostly to an evildoer who is trying to get away from the effects and thinks he can. But when these start to mature and come back at him, then it's untold misery. So we have this teaching in reference to this inadvertence to following the natural way. Let's see what Sri Ramakrishna says about the imposition of egotism in this regard. He states, Wisdom and liberation cannot be had as long as egoism persists birth and death also do not come to an end for that one who is given to egoism. In terms of this distortion in the mind, Sri Krishna puts it this way, that which enveloped in darkness regards unrighteousness opposed to the natural way of dharma as a desirable thing and views all things in a perverted way, that intellect is tamasic. So, cannot accept this natural way of light and love and harmony and must always cause a rift in that and go against it. That's a kind of perverted way or a kind of tamasic intelligence. Finally, Shusharda says, and she speaks on the level of the individual in this regard, she says, the intelligence of a human being is very subtle. It is like a screw that if turned slightly in the wrong direction, misthreads. threads Such a mind experiences mental imbalance. So, she says, this is a very subtle mechanism, this mind we're working with, and it has to be shown the clear, precise, and natural way. And if it isn't watched, then it can misthread like a screw. That is, it can start to go into these devious ways, slightly at first, and then maybe more precarious later. But the end result always being a kind of mental imbalance, and we see this even happening to people who meditate. That's why she said, "Don't force the mind to meditate. If during the period of meditation it's impossible and you've lost control of the mind, then read some scripture during that time, or do some work that's beneficial, something that will help you instead of brooding or forcing it, which would be like forcing a screw along or miss thread, or too much pranayam and that kind of thing can also." cause people to go a bit out of mental balance and sometimes quite extremely causing premature kundalini awakenings and things like that that are painful. So one has to be careful of that. It's a very uh, subtle and precarious razor's edged spiritual path that we tread and we need to listen to the advice of the guru and the revealed scriptures to keep us on track. Otherwise, we give it up or make a mockery out of it, as is seen in so many instances. This brings us to our last evolutive maya in this particular list called Swarupanyata Bhava. Swarupanyata Bhava. And these two, Pratiloma and Swarupanyata Bhava, go together because this means the state of being other than one's true nature. Instead of abiding in one's own essence, which is called Sarupa Pratista, one finds ways of denying that essence or hiding from it. And we were talking about this in terms of the hound of heaven always looking for you. That is, your true self is always on the lookout for you in that biblical sense. And you go here and there hiding from it. Ensconce yourself in all sorts of wayward activities or hide from it in some way in pleasures or in other pursuits, but eventually it will always catch up with you. That is, because your true nature is divine, you'll have to turn and face it. And turning and facing it oftentimes is turning and facing the brutes, as Vivekananda said, those problems which have hidden, or that you have hidden away. So this Swarupanyatabhava reveals a kind of lack of spiritual responsibility And it reveals also an inherent weakness in you, that you're not willing to face these things and face the negativities that are in the way of your true self and step forward and claim the divine inheritance, which is yours. People are always at odds with themselves. That is, those people who are under this particular evolute. And sometimes if you remain at odds with yourself, then you prefer to be at odds with yourself. That's the strange thing. If you try and get them back on track, they'll say, oh, no, that's not right, I don't want to do that. They'll prefer to be sick, or they'll prefer to be angry, or they'll prefer to be jealous, or they'll prefer to be out of harmony or unhappy. They want to be unhappy. It's a very strange thing, and psychology can call it different aberrations of the mind, but you can also trace it back to this one thing, that is, you're hiding from your true nature. And if you were to, as Ram Prasad says in his poem, turn and face the original. That is, look within at your own self. That will give you infinite peace and contentment and you'll put to rest this tendency of always running away from yourself. So one must be bold and stand up and declare the immortality of the self and also rise above this illusion of death. You shouldn't shirk or even shun your true nature out of fear, doubt, or laziness. Shri Ramakrishna puts it this way, In front of God's mansion lies a huge stump. One cannot get into the mansion without jumping over this stump. Of course, you know that as the imbalanced mind-ego complex, which is under the control or the distortion of this sarupanyata bhava, always hiding from the true nature. And Shri Ramakrishna noted the individual's willingness to overlook divinity and fixate on other things, And he said, very nicely so, according to a local legend, the snake has a precious jewel lodged in its head, yet is content to eat a mere frog. (laughs) Very humorous and apropos in regards to this tendency of the human mind. That is, the snake has a jewel in its head was an old myth. Metaphorically speaking, that means that we all have this Atman within us, the diamond self, yet we're content to eat a mere frog. In other words, we'll ignore that divine self and instead we'll run after all sorts of various things which are unreal or detrimental to our various levels of health. Swami Vivekananda has some nice sayings about this. He says, The self is all in all and none else exists and thou art that. And again he says, The real me is none but he and never, never matter changing. So to come to grips with the fact that you are not this world or you're not a material entity, but you're a spiritual verity, you must realize that the real me is none but he. He here means the absolute reality, the Atman. Lord Buddha says, Few beings ever cross over to the farthest shore. The multitudes who remain futilely run to and fro on this self-same shore. So few ever cross over to realization of their true self. They'd rather run along the shoreline of their apparent self. That's well put. Sri Krishna puts it this way, A person who denies the Atman is tormented by attachment to the body and its desires and activities. But the person whose mind rests in the Atman does not even know the body as it stands, sits, walks, lies down, eats food, or performs any other natural act. So that's one of the tendencies, and we saw it in Sri Ramakrishna and Swamiji and others, that they became aware of the Self, they forgot the body. That is, they just went about in the body naturally and easily without putting any effort into its maintenance or even feeding it sometimes. They'd forget to feed it. Whereas others who are running from their true Self will spend all sorts of time on the body, all sorts of money, all sorts of goods, feed it sumptuously, And other things. There was one story, one lady who was a devotee of Swami Vivekananda when he was here in the West noticed him one day pacing back and forth in the room. And he'd come up to a mirror and look in it and look at himself. And then he'd pace for a while, he'd go away, and then he'd come back and look at himself in the mirror. And she thought to herself, oh my gosh, there's vanity even in such a Swami Vivekananda. And he saw her standing there, and then he told her and said, what an amazing phenomenon this is. Every time I go away from the mirror, I can't remember what I look like. So I have to go back and look just to remind myself. So it showed that, no, it wasn't vanity at all. It was just curiosity at this fact that he had realized that his mind was so focused in reality all the time that he had forgotten the body, that he didn't even know what he looked like. So that's the case of a person. And of course we saw that in the nth degree in Sri Ramakrishna who was unkempt and often his cloth would fall from his body and uh, whether he was involved in sadhana or in samadhi the case was always the same. He was always very focused on reality. These are examples of beings who are not under the effects of Svarupa Nyata Bhava but actually are very much involved in swarupa Pratista. Pratista means a steadiness a state of steadiness, and svarupa means essence, so they are steady in their essence and have transcended long ago this last of maya called svarupa nyata bhava. That is a state of being other than one's true nature. You can't really ever be other than your true nature, but you can certainly pretend to be other than your nature, as if you were putting on a mask or masquerading. And in a way, that is this whole facade of maya, and we study the evolutes as aspirants or as adepts or advanced spiritual beings to see through this play of name and form. And we had the list of 16: forgetfulness of one's true nature, called mudavasta, the sense of I, me, and mine, which gets a hold of the mind, called mamakara. It's a kind of sense of ownership in relation to all levels of existence. Deha Adyasa attachment to the body out of ignorance. Parasparadyasa, wherein one mistakes the self for the body and the body for the self. Vishaya Shakti, which influences the mind by attaching it to the senses only. Bahir vritti, which describes the outward going mind, that fixates continually on external stimuli, therefore, forgoing the inner truths of our being. The Ashanatrayam, the great triple desire of spouse, wealth, and offspring, which, if done adharmically, that is, against the moral and ethical codes, or out of ignorance, binds us to the world. Shattavarana, doing a hundred things at once. That's very reflective of this day and age. A sort of telling sign of our times: people are doing a hundred things at once, and then their mind gets fragmented, and they forget the one most important thing. That is, by focusing on all the pearls of the necklace, they forget the string running through it—the subtle essence of life and existence. And then, Kartritto abimana. That delusion in the mind which supposes that one is the agent of one's action, that is a sense of agency, gets very pervasive and strong, and the idea leading to this higher truth that all happens by the will of the divine is not recognized. Visambhada Brahma, a kind of cloak of a mistaken identity that causes us to mistake one thing for another, or something real for something unreal, or something unreal for something real. That happens on cosmic, collective and individual levels of our existence. Viparita Bhavana, the belief that the world is the only reality. This is a evolute that is pretty strong in the minds of people who take the world to be real and God to be unreal or never, as Sri Ramakrishna said, think of God even by accident. Vrittigan, that is, attachment to the knowledge that one possesses and thinking it to be the entire and last statement on the whole matter. dosha the tendency of finding fault with others, with the world. tarkikabuddhi the problem of the intellect that always argues can never rest, but always argues. Pratiloma, an inadvertence towards following the way of harmony. As strange as it is, some people just eschew the natural balance of things and would rather be unhappy, although it's hard to figure, or would rather go against all that would lead one to happiness and contentment, and would rather be at odds with it or possibly just because of habitual tendencies overlooks the natural balance and always is in disharmony. And finally, swarupanyata bava, Bhava, always running away from one's true nature. The hound of heaven always seeking you to try and convince you of your true nature, but you're always running away from it. In other words, running away from that state of Swarupa Pratista, where you're abiding steadily in the Self. Instead, people try and hide from their true nature. It's another conundrum why people would do that when the bliss of the Self is all attractive, when one gets a taste of it. Anyway, a very flash, quick review of the 16 Evolutes of Maya, which we've talked about over the last few classes. That gives us a sort of 16-window view into the mansion of Maya. Admittedly, it's been concentrating on some of the negative evolutes of Maya. But we must give Maya credit too, because Sri Ramakrishna said, and I've repeated this several times over the last few classes, that Maya is just Brahman's power to project, sustain, create and destroy a universe. That is, the Shakti of Brahman, that dynamic power of Brahman, uses Maya and the Tantrasis say that Maya works its way through the entire creation from some of the very highest principles like the concept of time itself on down to the grossest substance called earth it's all created and is there uh, presented to our mind and senses via the courtesy of Maya of course we haven't studied her in this series of classes, but we know that the wielder of Maya, called Shaktiman, or Mahamaya, is the great enchantress which wields this power. And of course, Sri Ramakrishna said, if we propitiate the Shakti, the Mahashakti, or Mahamaya, of this universe, she whose business it is to create, preserve, and destroy, then we can ask her for escape from this ignorant condition, or any state of embodiment which may be impeding our spiritual growth. Not that the embodied state has to be seen as an impediment to spiritual growth, but quite often, uh, if one is attached to the body, as we were just saying, or sees it as the only reality, then that is the case. A complex has formed, or is formed, by these various desires called vasanas, and they create a samskara in the mind. These samskaras create samskara skandhas or knots of complexes and this is what transmigrates from birth to death and death to birth called jiva. But breaking the bonds of these samskara skandhas via grace and sadhana because self-effort and grace must go hand in hand like two wings of a bird one has a very propitious or fortunate or auspicious lifetime and one gains an overview of what's going on and is able to have a human birth, an enlightened preceptor, and the desire to be free. Those are the three great boons. And our Holy Mother, Sri Devi, Sri Ramakrishna's divine consort, says there's a fourth too and that's the grace of your own mind. You must take the opportunity when it comes and move with all celerity towards realization of the Atman within you. For that is conducive to a divine life, living a divine life. And we all want that, although many people don't know it. As we just said, Sarupanyata Baba, many run away from their essence and tend to hide sort of like an ostrich with its head in the sand, although their danger is all about, thinking it's safe there. Or as Shri said, like a fish with a net in its mouth diving into the mud, thinking itself to be safe in the mud, but will just be pulled up when the fisherman decides to take in his net. So that's what it's like to take refuge in maya, or in the ego, or the unillumined mind, or this world of matter and senses. Much better, the luminaries say, to take refuge in the Divine Mother of the Universe, or your chosen ideal, Ishvara, Ishvari, and come to comprehension of this essence within you. Come to a state of Swarupa Pratista, abidance, calm abidance, steady abidance, in yourself which nothing can taint or ruffle nothing can affect the composure and the depth and serenity the quiescence of that mind which is focused on the Atman which then leads to a non-dual state of awareness away from the shātavādhāna complex of fragmenting the mind into many many different things and onto the plateau of advaita so These sixteen evolutes are a very fascinating study and very informative and helpful if we look at them to make sure not only that we're not under the control of any of them and also to note that if they approach us we can cause them to recede, as Sri Ramakrishna said, simply by recognizing them. Because darkness has no substance, ignorance has no existence, it's self-created by your mind. You can easily bring the light in and do away with it, in the same way that you bring a torch into a cave that's been dark a thousand years. The light is gone, not in a thousand years, the darkness dissipates in just a few seconds. So we must have that attitude also towards any kind of ignorance or darkness of the mind, that if we bring the light of truth in, then immediately we feel the advent of divine grace and Atmic presence inside of us or within us. All-pervasive means, within means all-pervasive, everywhere. But first must detect it there, beyond mind, that means, in deep meditation and come to realization of its existence. So I was saying that Maya has its positive side too. When Divine Mother wields it, we find that this Beautiful creation burgeons forth from where no one knows, because we learned also along the non dual way that there is no creation and there is no destruction. There's just eternity or this one eternal moment and this one state, although the mind takes it and renders it into different interpretations. But this one Brahman is there nevertheless. We must strive to make our mind one pointed and see it, as Christ said, if thine I be single, thou shalt know the truth. So he was speaking of something very subtle, something you can do with this life and mind that causes Maya's multifaceted presentation to disappear and then the one light of consciousness to be revealed to you. What is that marvelous trick that causes that to happen? And how can it be brought about? That is, of course the subject on the minds of the saints, saviors, savants, sages, and seers. And what they tell us after they realize that non-dual Atman in no uncertain terms, that it is one and indivisible and all-pervasive, absolute and blissful and free and impossible to taint or divide, it is beyond birth and death. So, knowing that, then we look back upon this maya and we see it as a marvelous mechanism, a play. And that play is called lila. If we see just the external, then we get caught in that play. We're in maya, as it were. But if we break through that, then we find that there's this great play or sport of consciousness going on. That takes what the ancients called pratyabhigya. It's a wonderful word means divine recognition. This recognition vaults one up over the fields or the atmospheres of Maya, where one can get a view from a different angle of this lila. When Mahamaya works to create a universe, she uses various powers. This Maya is a cover all term for these powers, but how this relates on a higher level to her various powers in terms of shakti, creative force inherent in Brahman or the Absolute, dynamic power, or ways which the Mahashakti gets her work accomplished. And these could be called lesser shaktis or sub-shaktis. Her will, her wisdom, her spontaneity, and her activity. And those are four ways of describing it in English. Will, wisdom, spontaneity, and activity these are all one with Divine Mother Shakti. Now her will is called Icha Shakti, I-C-C-H-A, Icha Shakti, determines what her creation will consist of in any given age, what occurrences are to take place and manifest, how embodiment will take place. This is all to be seen in terms of the physical universe, experiences with our senses, and other worlds. This Icha Shakti is her divine will then, through that beings engage in this sport, in this mahalila. Or some get enmeshed in the Maya, as we're saying. As one song goes, you caused the powerful elephant to get caught in the mire, yet caused the lame man to scale the highest mountain. On some you bestow the highest bliss, others you hurl into the world of suffering. So, a way of saying, by song, this idea of divine will and how inscrutable it is. A second type of power of Divine Mother Shakti is called Jnana Shakti. There's her Icha Shakti, her divine will. and Then there's the Jnana Shakti, Mother's wisdom force. It contains and implements all subtle powers for manifestation by way of intelligence. This intelligence extends to the highest and deepest levels of existence. So this Gyanashakti is Mother's force of truth, and it has to do with meaning and symbology. All that is, all that was, all that ever will be, by terms of subtle thought and intelligence, is there in that Gyanashakti. Shakti. That is how she pours life force into creations, both gross and subtle. It permeates all worlds with vitalizing power. You can draw on it right now by breathing deep and exercising this breathing process. Because this Kriya Shakti is really the very breath of the mahashakti, The activating force that acts in and through everything and animates everything. So the doings of all living beings proceed through this impetus of Kriya-Shakti. In the purest condition, it's ever free and effortless and spontaneous, as we were saying earlier, totally unencumbered by anything. And you could see these different powers of the Shakti are not compartmentalized or separate from each other. If Kriya-Shakti got together with Jnana-Shakti, then you'd have this insightful realization springing forth in the mind, spontaneous, that is a combination of intelligence and spontaneity. This would be in the form of what other people might call genius. You could say Kriya Shakti could drive the human mind to its highest potential so that intellect would be plumbed to its depths. There's a fourth Shakti, or power called Drauvya Shakti. The great luminaries talk about we often define it as the producer of substances. That is, there has to be a way these forms get created. All these various forms of nature, trees and plants and flowers and even human bodies and different forms, all come about and into existence by this force of dravya shakti. And it's not mere magic. That is something out of nothing, which doesn't make sense, but it's wielding the five elements that are distributed proportionately throughout this vast creation. As a producer, she helps mold all the worlds with these great Mahabhūtas, or five elements. Not only in the gross way that we see the prakriti or nature about us, but with subtle ideas. There's a subtler light than the sun. There's a subtler aspect to earth. There's a subtler aspect to water, like liquidity or the idea of flow subtler aspects to air and ether. So these can create thought worlds, permeate all levels of conception from gross on up to subtle. So even the etheric nature of all the higher lokas that we hear talked about are due to her presence and activity as Dravya Shakti. She's a producer of substances. And, of course, at the time of dissolution, she'll break down all these insentient principles and dissolve them back into herself. That's called pralaya, or at the end of many cycles, the great dissolution, or mahapralaya. So we ought to know how Shakti divides herself into these main four powers, and how she wields the maya in different ways. We said that it's not really wise to enter into a too deep of an analysis about Maya's domain. Sri said, just recognize it and it will recede, leaving that one light for you to gaze upon. And that light is the Atman and that Atman is your very self. But of course, that shouldn't lead us to believe that we must remain ignorant about things. And so you could say the one important exception is that one should strive for knowledge. And there are two kinds of knowledge that she presents to us, that is, for those who are seeking knowledge, seeking to better themselves, one's called Aparavidya and one's called Paravidya. Apara, lesser, and para, greater, in terms of Aparavidya meaning knowledge of a secular type and Paravidya meaning knowledge of a supreme truth which leads us to transcendence and realization. If we follow this path of Paravidya, then Maya's powers quite swiftly get rendered helpless, To affect us. We can live a divine life in a body using this mind with its intelligence awakened and its ego attenuated and its dual propensities unified. That Paravidya helps us immensely toward that aim. And even those who follow a Paravidya, that is science and physics, math, literature, arts, various subjects, if they do so to try and use that knowledge towards a higher end in paravidya or realization, then that knowledge can be helpful. But if they do it simply under the idea that these things are ends in themselves, as we were saying earlier about the evolute, which causes one to think of one's own knowledge as the highest, then laboring under that vritti gan, one can be stymied in one's efforts to try and reach any definitive end that's beneficial to the human being or collective society. So, maya, in that way, gets in through that avenue of aparavidya and causes beings to analyze the universe looking for some mystery or some phantom or some great secret that matter holds. It's called looking for God in all the wrong places because God is not a material principle. This higher reality or this ultimate reality is spiritual in nature, so one must become very subtle to find it. If one takes that mind and intelligence and makes it more subtle, then one sees the inner workings in terms of oneness, and then all the multiplicity and the variety makes sense. So it's important to pursue this paravidya, this supreme truth, this knowledge which leads to the highest these are eternal and sacred principles, comprehensive wisdom, an bliss, inner peace, things of a transcendent nature. And they're associated with pure conscious awareness. And they're beyond name and form. And they remain greatly undiscovered by masses of embodied beings. Maya is there to enchant the mind and take it away from that great Paravidya. So thank you all for lending an ear to these teachings and may they benefit us all and may we see through the projections of maya and may maya recede from us and then we will all come to understand our true nature and reach swiftly and with full attainment and understanding the goal of human existence. So let's end with a Sanskrit chant. Om Masato OM Masato MA SATKAMOYA TAMASO MA JOYTIR GAMOYA MRITYOR MA MRITAM GAMAYA ABHIR ABHIR AMAYETI RUDRA YATE DAKSHINAM ukam, OM shanti, SHANTI SHANTI SHANTIHI Lead us from darkness to light. Lead us from lower truth to higher truth. Lead us from the illusion of death to immortality and reach us through and through with thy sweet and benign presence. Om peace, peace, peace. May peace be unto us and may peace be unto all. Om Mahari Om